If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, where we are going to return to the thrilling and exciting section of men's and women's roles in worship. I have been uh, preparing for quite some time, reading up on about everything I can think of to study for looking at in the next month or so. And I want you to know there is a mountain of material written on this section, and uh, it's really a, a marvel that um, so many views could come from uh, just a few verses of Scripture. But um, I hope that as uh, we work through this passage, you will be encouraged that I will be able to make things clear to you, and hopefully you will be able to understand the Word of God and what God wants us to do as a church. For 1950 years, evangelical churches have taught and modeled biblical male and female roles in the worship service. Yet, in the last 25 years, feminism has pushed and pushed to have male and female distinctives erased altogether, not only in society but also in the church. Some of their complaints were justified. For instance, women wanted equal pay in society for doing equal jobs. That's only fair. They wanted to be able to prove themselves as equals to men in the workplace. And of course, in most professions they did. And in some instances, they they excel. Uh, There are certain tasks that women can do better than men. And it seemed that feminists not only wanted the curse of having pain in childbirth, but they also wanted the curse of working by the sweat of their brow. Not only the curse of raising children, but as the one famous commercial, the woman was to bring home the bacon and fry it up in the pan. (laughs) This was the ideal of feminism. And the feminist propaganda lured more and more women into the secular workplace. And in the process, many families began to neglect the God-ordained and God-given priorities of raising children and raising families and instilling morals in their children and teaching them to respect authority and on and on. This, in turn, raised the standard of living as now more and more double-income families um, begin to increase uh, their earning power. Inflation then increased because people could afford more, thus making it harder for the single-income families to survive. Then, because of the inflation, because of many husbands' desire to keep up with the Joneses, um, they pushed their wives out of the home so that they could have the things of this world. But they did it oftentimes to the neglect and utter disobedience to what God says in His Word. When women entered the workplace ever in ever-increasing numbers, it led to an exponential increase in immorality, adultery, fornication, and juvenile delinquency. As parents abdicated their role in the home to acquire the things of the world, 
the children were often the victims. And those children then, not having moral direction, having parents who were gone most of the time in their most formidable years of their life, from about ages 1 to 5 or 1 to 7, depending on who you talk to, um, begin to rebel. The abandonment of God's design for women in the home has then caused what we are now experiencing in our society is one of the major factors leading to the disintegration of the home. And, as we noted last week, as uh, Bob Vernon pointed out, in many cities of the major cities in the United States, the percentage of pregnancies and births to unwed mothers is now at the 60 and sometimes 70% mark. These women, their children... And the societies in which they live have fallen prey to Satan's demonic deceptions as he has taken what God has ordained is right and purposeful for the family and male and women's roles and has totally turned it upside down and now we are having to deal with the aftermath. But the feminist movement didn't stop in society. It has moved into the church. Gender-neutral Bibles are now becoming more and more common. Ordained women pastors, women elders, women preachers are now the standard in the bulk of churches, even among those who claim to be evangelicals and Bible-believing. Those who hold to what the Scriptures clearly teach and what the church has believed for over 1,900 years are labeled as antiquated, bigoted women-haters who are trying to suppress women and keep them under their thumb and to keep them from exercising their spiritual gifts. And this has led to a huge amount of material being written by the feminists in recent days who are trying very hard to deny and or explain away what the scriptures clearly teach. For 1900 years, the only women who were teachers and preachers and pastors were women of either cult groups or women in groups that were Highly experiential, those who based all of their doctrine on what they experienced. The concept of women preachers, elders, leaders in public worship is a very recent phenomena, 25 to 30 years at the most. And I say this to let you know that before we get into the passage we're going to be getting into, some of you are going to have a hard time. Some of you are going to think, Wait a second, this doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem normal. Well, I want you to know, if you compare with the world, it's not normal. If you compare with 1,900 years of church history, it is very normal. And knowing this, I want you to know, I have labored and studied and read stacks of journal articles and books trying to make sure that whatever I tell you is of the most precise nature as I possibly can. Usually I like to preach in a way that's kind of engaging, that's a little bit lighter, that's, um, you know, kind of fun. But when you get into a subject like this, 
because there is so much attack, because the passage we are going to be looking at in the next month or so is the most hated passage by liberal feminists, I am going to go very slow and be very precise. Because out of all the societies, I think California often is the leader among liberal trends and doctrines and schisms. I remember when I was in Idaho, some weird thing would pop up in the church, and I'd think, man, you know, this is really weird. And I'd call my friend down here, and he'd say, oh, yeah, that happened here two years ago. (laughs) It took about two years for those things to kind of creep up north. And oftentimes, they started in this area. And many who are more concerned with women's rights than what with what the Word of God teaches, move around from church to church, from place to place, until they can find somebody who is going to tell them what they want to hear. And this can be readily done in this area. I think you could go down Glen Oaks and uh, find anything you want as far as doctrine, from very conservative to extremely liberal. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3 that in the last times, those are the times in which we live, that they will be a time of doctrinal aberration, Paul said, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, literally lusts. Friends, it is time to return to what the Word of God says, to look at it carefully, to look at it diligently and then to obey it with all our heart and to not cave in to the trends of society. The church is not to give in to what the world tells us, but to hold fast the truth. We are the pillar and support of the truth. That is why we exist in this world, to uphold what the Word of God says. So I encourage you to take diligent notes to be like the Bereans and to search the things that we go over in the next month in your own quiet times, to search them out, to study the Word of God, because really, that's what it's all about. The reason why we are here and the only reason why we are here is to give glory to God. It is to give God glory by obeying and submitting to His Word, not the theories and agendas of the world. And so I hope that it is all your desire to be diligent, to present yourself approved to God as workmen who do not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. And I want you to know that is my sole goal. Now, as we've looked in verses 1 through 7, I just want to just remind you quickly, because we have some incredible stuff to cover here this morning in verse 8, and that is, we have seen that we need to be praying for all men. We have seen why we need to be praying for all men. We have seen that God finds it good and acceptable that all men be saved. He desires all men to be saved. And the reason for that is that he has sent his son, Christ Jesus, the one mediator between God and men, to give his life as a ransom for all. And we noted two weeks ago that... It was to this message, the gospel message, that Paul the apostle, the preacher, and the teacher of the Gentiles was appointed by God. We learned that in verse 7. 
So, having said that, please follow along in your Bibles as I read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Paul has just said, I am the apostle, I am appointed by God, I am the preacher and teacher of the Gentiles. Now Gentiles, listen to what God says. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. Then it was Adam. It was not Adam who was first deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. Let's pray. Father, we just ask you as we come to this passage, a passage which is under great attack by many people in the world today, that, Father, your Holy Spirit would illumine our hearts so that we could hear what you have for us, that, Father, we would understand clearly and precisely what your word says, And Father, in doing so, we would understand the timeless principles found here in the text and how we might apply them to our own life and our own local body here, Calvary Bible Church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are only going to look at verse 8 today, and I want to point out four aspects of men in prayer. First, Paul's apostolic authority is asserted. Then we are going to look at the object of Paul's assertion or his directive. Then we are going to look at the scope of Paul's directive. And then finally, the directive itself explained. First, let's look at Paul's apostolic authority. Look at the beginning of verse 8. Paul says, therefore, I want, and just stop there for a moment. We need to understand what Paul has just said in verse 7. He says, I am the appointed preacher, the apostle, and the teacher of the Gentiles. God appointed me to the Gentile church of which you are to tell you what you need to do. The therefore shows us that Paul is connecting what he has just said about prayer with what he is going to say. The whole context from 2-1 all the way through the end of chapter 3 is how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God. And so Paul says, therefore, this is what I want. Now, having listed his credentials, we know that whatever Paul says is what God says because Paul is God's man, God's appointed man to teach the church. The phrase, I want, might also be translated desire, wish, or will. And in this context, it carries a command force. Because Paul is speaking authoritatively. When Paul tells the church he wants us to do something, the church, because it is to submit to the apostles, because the church is built on the foundation teaching of the apostles, is to do what the apostle says. So after reminding us of his authority, 
He says, this is what I want, and it is a similar exhortation. If you turn back to chapter um, 1, actually verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, first of all then, I urge, this is the same similar phrase, um, it's similar like I want, and then he tells us what we are to do. The exact same phrase appears in 1 Timothy 5.14, where Paul gives instructions to widows, and then he appears again in Titus 3.8, where Paul tells Titus to speak the truth confidently. So we know that Paul is giving us some divine directive here from God to the church. Now, Let's look at the object of Paul's directive. When we come to the object, we see this. He says, I want the men. Here we see that Paul's exhortation is towards the men. Specifically, he is not talking about men or women in a generic way, but men and women in a, in a very separate way, because he is going to address the women in the verses that follow. You can see this very clearly because in the Greek, there are a couple different terms that are used of men or translated men. One is the word anthropos, the word we get anthropology from. That word appears three times in the text, the preceding context. It's um, a general term. You might translate it mankind. Look at um, verse 1 where he says, First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. That is anthropos there, all mankind. Then look at verse 4. God who desires all anthropos, mankind, to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And then verse 5, it appears again. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and mankind, anthropos, the man Christ Jesus. But here, Paul switches. Paul switches to the term aner, the word we get like andros from in the Greek, and it is a a specific term that means adult males only, and it is never used of females in any Greek context. It's always used of males. Paul, here in verse 8, takes this word aner, a definitive term, and he lays it out saying, I want the males to lead in prayer. That's what he's saying. And we know that he is making an emphasis on this, not only because of that term, which is crystal clear, but secondly, because Paul is contrasting in verse 8 with uh, what men are supposed to do with what he wants women to do. Verse 9, he says, likewise, women. So he's making this contrast, men this, then women that. Now, If Paul was trying to say, I want both men and women to lead in prayer, you would think for certain that he would have just used anthropos. That would have been the normal term, the term he had already used three times in the near preceding context, but he doesn't. This tells us he's addressing men only. And so we can see from this that Paul is talking about men. And if you look in your English Bibles and you just see men, 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 and you know that verse 1 and verse 4 and verse 5 is universal, people have come to the conclusion, because they haven't looked at the Greek text, that men in verse 8 must be universal also, but it is not. It is very specific. 
Paul's point is, is that when the church assembles to worship in a, in a public way, when we come together to assemble and worship God corporately, he wants men and not women to lead in prayer. And this, of course, is not because women are less spiritual or because they aren't able to pray or because they aren't as godly. It's because it is a perversion of God's ordered roles for men and women to have women lead men in public worship. That's all. It has nothing to do with value. It has nothing to do with ability. It has only to do with what God tells us to do in his word. The Scottish commentary series by Ritchie, What the Bible Teaches, one commentator said, Who are to uh, pray audibly in public? The answer is males, as distinct from females. He goes on to say, No sophistry of any kind may negate such a plain scripture as this, end quote. Some have tried to say that Paul is only trying to regulate a specific group of men. They say, oh no, what's happening here is there was just a few men in Ephesus who had some problems. They had wrath and dissension, and therefore Paul is just trying to regulate them only. That he's not talking about all churches in every place, or men in every church situation, but only the men in this situation, because these specific men had specific problems, and it doesn't apply to us. Yet... If Paul intended for men and women to lead, he would have used the word anthropos. And he would not have just said, well, I just only want these specific men to play without wrath and dissension. That wouldn't be right. We are to all not to pray without wrath or dissension. It's not just something for specific. Everyone needs to pray with their heart right before the Lord. And so as we come to this passage, you need to realize that Paul is not picking on anybody. He's just trying to lay down what God has said we need to do in the church. He's not trying to suppress women. As a matter of fact, the text actually teaches the opposite, as in the... um, Jewish culture, women were basically set aside, put up in the balcony, put in the back or whatever. And here they're clearly supposed to teach and another, other, or be taught and clearly um, be educated and learn and grow in the Lord. And uh, in the weeks to come, we're going to look at the many, many uh, ministry opportunities that women have. It's just in this one specific area, God has um, asked men and only men to do it. In addition to that, the context is not focused on the Ephesian church. You could say, well, you know, these these guys here were doing this. Well, the problem is, is the whole section here, according to verse 15, is how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. He's not talking about just that church. And we know this also from the next point, the scope of Paul's directive. Look what the text says. He says... I want men where? In every place, not just the Ephesian place, every single place that the church exists, which just kind of puts an end to that argument that he is only talking to a specific group of men in a specific location. He is talking to the Ephesian church, and yes, he all the letters, all the epistles in the, in the New Testament are written to specific situations. But they apply universally to the church, unless there is some reason in the context to believe otherwise. So Paul says, I want men in every place to pray. Now the word here is tapas, the word we get, um, you know, uh, what is it, uh, topography from. Um, that's the word he's using here. He says, I want, I want men in every topography, every geographical location to be praying. 
In addition to that, Paul states, again, that this is something for all the churches in verse 15. This is what God wants. Now, while it is fair to say that some aspects of this text do relate to specific instances in the Ephesian situation, it would be erroneous to conclude that the principles do not carry over to other churches. I mean, just think about this. Even if you say certain men were having a problem praying with wrath and dissension, to say that that only applies to the Ephesian church would be saying that it's okay for men to pray with wrath and dissension in other churches. And no one believes that. No one believes that. That is a universal universal uh, principle. God does not want us to come to him with, with uh, sin on our heart, to being factious and having dissensions. Now, having said that, and I hope that's about as clear as I can make it, we are now going to embark on a rather large rabbit trail. And in the uh, weeks to come, we're going to go on rabbit trails so we can look at all the other texts related. So turn to 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. If you have ever studied this passage before, you know it's a real humdinger. Um, this is one of those passages that you read and just think to yourself, what in the world is going on here? I want to look at this text because... Some people have used a couple verses in this text to try and say that 1 Timothy 2.8 isn't saying what it's saying because this passage says something different. Now, I just want to say this before we look at verses 2 and following. Paul wrote 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians. And so he is not contradicting himself. But even greater than that, God wrote 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, and God does not contradict himself. So whatever the answer is between this passage and the passage we are looking at and another passage we're going to look at, you need to remember that God's word does not contradict himself. We don't have the privilege of just saying, well, I like this interpretation of this verse, and even though it runs roughshod into this one, I'm just going to ignore that one and just mark it out of my Bible because it, it, it poses a problem to what I want to believe. No, we have to come to a place where we understand all the texts related to any given subject in such a way that they all agree because God does not contradict himself. So the hermeneutical Bible study principle that you need to remember is called the unity of the meaning of Scripture or the analogy of the faith or Scripture interprets Scripture or cross-reference. That any Scripture, when interpreted correctly, will never contradict any other Scripture when interpreted correctly. So look at verse 2, and we, just, we are going to go through this um, like a sieve. Look at, look at verse 2. He says, Now I praise you because you remembered me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Here is God's order of submission laid out crystal clear. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. The entire text from here on out 
all the way down to verse 16 is predicated on this initial foundational statement that God has brought a certain order to his creation that we must adhere to. He says in verse 4, Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Now just stop there for a moment. In Corinth, it must have been some cultural custom for women to have their head covered. And and it's amazing to uh, look at the commentators who go to great lengths to try and figure out what it was. Well, obviously, we don't need to know. All we need to know is that at Corinth, when women covered their heads, it was an act of submission. And to not cover their heads was an act of lack of submission. And that's all. And for argument's sake, we'll just say it's a veil. I don't know what it was. Paul doesn't tell us. But we know that Paul says that if a man were to put a veil on it would disgrace his head. Now, who is the head of man? What did we read in the preceding verse? Christ. So, in other words, if a man shows submission, it disgraces Christ. Then he goes down in verse 5. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying, you might want to take a note of those two words as those are the buzzwords of this whole passage. We're going to look at everything and come back to them. While praying or prophesying disgraces her head. Now, who is the woman's head? The woman's head is what? The man. That's what he says. If a woman covers her physical head, or doesn't, who uncovers her physical head, then she disgraces her spiritual head, which is the man. That's what Paul says in, in verse 5. Then in verse 6, he continues, For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also shave her hair or cut her hair off, but it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved. So let her cover her head. Now, in that culture, the prostitutes would shave their head. They would shave their head to make a statement that they were not submissive, that they were like the Proverbs 7 woman. They were boisterous and rebellious and out in the street and lurking by every corner. And to shave your head was basically an advertisement. It was not a very submissive thing. It was a very progressive and aggressive thing. And Paul, what he's saying here in verse 6 is, listen, if you're a woman and you're going to take your veil off or whatever it was they put on, why don't you just go ahead and shave your head? Why don't you just be like a prostitute? You know, if you're going to, if you're going to be unsubmissive, why not just go all the way? I mean, if you're going to degra- disgrace your head, the man, then why would you just not go all the way? He says, listen, it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off, to do what the prostitutes were doing. And it's disgraceful for you if you uncover your head. So Paul says, shaving your head would be disgraceful just as praying and prophesying with your head uncovered is disgraceful. So Paul then, in verse 7 and following, gives us four arguments why it is disgraceful for a man to dress in such a way that he... shows submission to the woman or why it is disgraceful to 
the man, if the woman then dresses in such a way as not showing submission to the man. And look at what he says, verse 7. For a man ought to ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Now that's the first reason. The second reason, verse 8, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. There's the second reason. Verse 9, for indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for man's sake. This is the third reason. Verse 10, therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. This is the fourth reason. So why are women to be submissive to men? Why do they not make statements of uh, bold and brazen um, lack of submission? One, because woman is the glory of man, because woman was created from man, because woman was created for man, and because the angels are watching. Those are the four reasons Paul gives here. He gives others in the text that we are going to be working through and then uh, in a couple other places. But just here he gives those four. Now just so the woman, women don't feel like um, Paul is trying to just reign on their party and, uh, and speak to them as some sort of uh, spiritually inferior um, part of the male-female relationship... He makes a clear statement in verses 11 and 12 that when it comes to spirituality, when it comes to salvation in Christ, when it comes to interdependence, both men and women are equally dependent upon one another. Look at what he says, verse 11. However, in the Lord, there is neither woman, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Although men and women have different roles, they are interdependent, they need each other, and are co-equal in a spiritual sense, in that in salvation, as Galatians 3.28, there's neither bond nor free, Jew or Gentile, male or female, whatever, we are all one in Christ when it comes to salvation. So then he goes on, verse 13. So judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? The implied answer is, of course not, because she's not showing submission and she's disgracing her head, her husband. Verse 14. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, you ought to try this today when you're milling around in the foyer. Try and see how many guys have bald heads. And then try and see if there is an equal number of women. Try and find one woman with a bald head. They're just not very common. And Paul's whole argument is here is, listen, it's just, it's like what we see in nature. I mean, isn't it true that guys tend to lose their hair, but women don't? I mean, even nature itself shows you that women are to have their head covered. That's his whole argument that he uses here to tell the Corinthians, listen, you women, don't be uncovering your head and therefore make a statement in the public worship that you are not going to submit to men. You know, a parallel might be um, today if, you know, some woman were to come in and have something very 
slinky on and not wear a bra or something, she'd be making a statement. What are you doing? Don't, don't dress like that. I mean, you're not showing submission. You're showing rebellion. And that's what Paul's driving after here. And then he makes the statement in verse 16. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches, plural, of God. Now, I don't think Paul's saying, hey, we ought to all get hats on and all wear them to church. I don't think that's what he's saying, women. I think what he's saying here is this. Whatever the culture dictates shows submission. We need to do that. If you are in a culture where women wear hats, and that's what women do to show submission, you wear hats. If it's veils, you wear veils. You know, if it's a crown, you wear a crown. Whatever. But he says there's no other practice than what? That women should dress in such a way as to maintain their femaleness and submission to authority. Now, the issue raised by some, and all that's just introduction to the problem. Now, the issue raised by some is that verses 5 and 13 talk about women praying and prophesying. Look at verse 5 again at 1 Corinthians 11. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. And then if you go down to verse 13, judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Now... Now you're saying, oh, do you see the problem here? Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.8, I want men to pray. And here he says, I want women to pray as long as they have their head covering or they show submission to men. And this is an apparent contradiction. Some would like to say, well, obviously, verse 8 of 1 Timothy 2 doesn't apply. And so we are going to ignore it. Others would say, no, um, we are going to ignore 1 Corinthians 11 because it's a really bizarre passage and we don't want to deal with that. We'll just stick to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Well, neither of those is being honest with the text because we need to find out how we can make them both work. So, what is the solution? Well, you see, submission of men to women is to be practiced in the home as well as in the church, isn't it? I mean, if you were to look up uh, Ephesians 5.22 or Colossians 3.18 or 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, it would tell you the same exact thing right off the bat. Wives, be subject to your husbands. And so I, don't, I think what Paul is saying here is this. That in a general sense, wherever it is legitimate for women to pray or prophesy, and we aren't even going to get into the prophesy thing, but wherever we get into situations where women can pray or prophesy, make sure that they don't usurp God-given roles. You see, do you think Paul is saying, now in the church, make sure you show submission, but at home you don't need to? No, no. Because submission for the Christian is not only something that happens just at church, but something that happens at the home as well. Paul is not saying that it's okay for women to have authority over men in worship just as long as um, 
It's not public worship. And he's not saying that it's never okay for women to worship in such a way as to violate God's created order of submission. He's not saying that. What Paul means is that whenever a woman prays or prophesies, wherever that's legitimate to do, and he's not going to talk about that yet until chapter 14. We're going to look at that in a minute. He says, wherever that is, just know that she is not to show lack of submission. That's what the text says, and that is the only way that you can interpret it so that it agrees with what Paul is going to say a couple chapters later. Turn to chapter 14. In chapter 14, verse 31, chapter 14, of course, is all about tongues in the church and praying versus, um, uh, or not praying, but um, prophesying versus tongues and how um, there is a static speech and there is the biblical gift of tongues and how prophecy um, is better because people understand what you are saying and Paul's making this big argument. Why don't you look at verse um, 31. We'll start there and then we'll work down. For you can all prophesy one by one so that you may learn and all may be exhorted. I guess there were some problems there and everybody was having these prophetic utterances, this miraculous gifts that God was giving to, uh, it seems, um, people in the church to give divine revelation because the, the church didn't have the New Testament, so God was speaking through people, but everybody wanted to say what they had to say as fast as they could. He says, well, he says, it's okay. He says, if more than one of you has the gift of prophecy, that's okay. But don't do it at the same time. Just do it one by one so that everybody can be edified by what God is saying through whoever has the gift of prophecy. Then he says in verse 32, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. That is, you need to remember that when you are preaching or prophesying, that whatever you say must be subject to what the prophets have already said. In other words, you can't tell people that God says it's okay to murder now. That would be not being subject to what the prophets said. Then he says in verse 32, For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace, as in all the churches of the saints... The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now that is crystal clear. This is the same Paul who wrote chapter 11, just a couple chapters earlier. And the chapters, of course, are added Paul is not saying that it's okay for women to pray and prophesy and lead the, the assembly of believers in that way because he says crystal clear right here, don't do it. So, another thing that you need to look at here is this. And this just strengthens the argument a little bit. When you look at verse 32 and 33, where it talks about the spirits of prophets or subject to prophets... For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, this is probably how the text should be punctuated. There probably should be a period after peace. And as should be capital A. And at the end of the verse, saints should have a comma after it. It should read, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, period. Then it should start the sentence, the new verse, as in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to be to subject themselves, just as the law also says. 
Now, the reason for that interpretation is this. Is God the God of peace and not confusion only, only in the church here? Is he only the God of peace just in the assembly of the saints? No. He is the God of peace everywhere. Not just in the churches, but everywhere. And so that could be one way to see the text, which would even strengthen what is already crystal clear. So having said that, let's get our rabbit trail and go back to the text we're supposed to be looking at, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. And we'll wrap up here. Now, Paul says, this is what I want. And we have seen that the subject of what Paul wants is that he wants men to pray. That's what he wants. He wants men in every place to pray. That's what he wants. And notice, he is now going to give the directive. We're finally going to give the action of what he wants. And that is to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Again, the focus is evangelistic prayer and the public worship service. Now, after saying that this function is a function of male leadership, he qualifies the kind of prayer, and it's got to be lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. So get your hands up. No, just kidding. So what about this? Is this cultural? Well, in the Old Testament... In Exodus chapter 30, verse 19, that's the first place where God instructs Aaron and all the subsequent high priests before they went and served the Lord to wash their hands. Now, why do you think he had them do that? Was it because their hands were necessarily dirty? No. He had them do that because it was a symbolic act of an inner heart cleansing. Why is that? Because your hands are what do things for you. They often in the scriptures represent actions, the doing of things. You know, when it says um, in Deuteronomy 6 that we are to bind God's word on our hand, what that means is, is everything we do, we are to do in accordance with God's word. He's not saying strap a little, you know, phylactery or whatever on the back of your hand. That's not what he's saying. This is clear as you look at a few texts. For instance, Psalm 24.4, God describes the person who can go up to his holy hill in these terms. He says, who can uh, ascend into his presence? Quote, it is he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. And in the New Testament times, it was often normal for people to raise their hands. And we don't know exactly how they raised them, whether they did this or this or this or this. I'm not sure. But as you go through the scriptures, you can find people doing lots of things with their hands. Praying with their hands up, with their hands out, with their palms up. He says, you, you go through the scriptures, you find people praying with their hands down and kneeling with their, their head between their knees, you know, um, lying prostrate on the ground, praying in the belly of a fish. I mean, there's a lot of different, you know, postures that people are praying. And Paul is not emphasizing posture here. He's emphasizing holiness in the act of prayer. Because how could you be praying for somebody 
How could you be praying for their salvation and yet have wrath in your heart? Have dissension or doubting in your heart? Evil thoughts is basically what he's saying here. Paul wants us to be praying with a pure heart. And I think this is the good application of the text today, and that is this. A lot of people think that just because they're Christians, anytime they want, they can just approach God and pray, and God will hear them and answer their prayers. That's not true. That is not true. God hears the prayers of those who have their sins confessed. Do you know that if you have sin in your life, and you bring your sin before God, that is, not to confess it, but to deny it, and then ask Him for something else, you blaspheme the name of God. You profane the name of God. You see, God has, through Christ's death, given you access, as the author of Hebrews says, to boldly approach the throne of grace to find help in a time of need. And you can do that anytime you want. But you never want to do that if you have unconfessed sin in your heart. That's like dragging a, the carcass of a dead animal into the Holy of Holies. Do you remember what, what David said in Psalm 66, 18? David said, if I regard wickedness in my heart, what? The Lord will not hear me. Do you remember what happened to Nadab and Abihu? They were, they were Aaron's sons. They were in charge of working the tabernacle for the first time. And they brought strange fire. I mean, we're just talking the wrong fire. Some, some you know, the coals went out and they just whipped up some or something. Just, I mean, you'd think to yourself, it's just fire. What's the big deal? You know, I mean, whether it, it's Kingsford or Springfield. And yet God was so angry with them because they did not follow his word exactly that fire came out from the presence of the Lord and devoured them. And then God told Moses and Aaron, don't mourn because they have treated me as unholy. And that is exactly what happens when you know there's something in your life, if you're living in sin, if you know you have something in your heart, and you approach God and never mention that, you profane the name of God. You treat Him as unholy. That's why Proverbs 15.8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is His delight. Proverbs 28.9 says, He who turns away... His ears from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. When Jesus healed the blind man in John chapter 9 and verse 31, the blind man told the Jewish leaders, We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. It is absolutely imperative that when we come to God, we have our sins confessed. If you have something in your life, if you're living in sin, if you've done something wrong, if you're not right with somebody, and you go to pray to God, you must first confess that. That is the only prayer God wants to hear. 
And so often people are frustrated. You know, I'm praying, I'm praying that God would fix me, that God would help me in my circumstance, but there's this major area of sin in their life that they aren't dealing with. So finally, Paul clarifies what he means when he says, without wrath or dissension, to lift up holy hands, that is, come before God with a holy, pure heart that is void of wrath and dissension. Why? Well, you can't be praying for the salvation of all men if you're hating them or cheating them, or swindling them, or whatever. And so we are to come as a a believing body to be led by men, and that all of us are to pray with holy hearts, but especially those who lead in public worship. So we have learned that Paul wants men to pray, that it is to be practiced wherever the church meets, And that when we pray, we must never come before God with unconfessed sin in our lives because it profanes the name of God. Christ died to give us access to the throne of grace, but never, ever bring sin into his presence because that is to sin against God. Now, in the next episode, verses 9 and 10, We are going to look at this verse, and no, you don't have to take your jewelry off next week, women. We are going to look at this verse and see what Paul is talking about when he's talking about how women were to dress in a certain way and why he asked them to dress in a certain way and how that works into worship. Let's pray. Father, we come before you asking that you would search our hearts and try us to see if there be any wicked way in us. Father, we confess our sin to you. We ask that you would find it in your grace and mercy to cleanse us as you have promised to do in your word from all unrighteousness. Father, I pray that we would all diligently ponder the things that we have heard this morning that we would examine your word carefully and that we would come away more sure and more equipped to worship you in a way which gives you glory, for that's why we exist. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.